Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Good morning. What on earth was that about? Uh, well, that was a picture for us of Christmas joy. A child opening up a present. You got a Nintendo 64. That's a video game console. And you just saw the joy and the excitement and the exuberance on display in somewhat maybe bizarre fashion or even humiliating fashion, but full of joy. And it makes me think of David as he was dancing before the Ark of the Covenant with this wild exuberance and his wife is looking on at him and is embarrassed and humiliated, confronts him about it. And he says, oh no, I was was doing that before the Lord. I was celebrating before the Lord and I'm going to keep celebrating before the Lord. I'm going to become even more undignified. I'm going to be humiliated in my own eyes. Joy. Well, this morning we lit a candle and we have a message that is supposed to elicit in us joy. Uh, But before we dive into that, let's go before God in prayer asking his blessing here. Father God, I pray that your spirit would be over us and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would strip away everything that is not from you and bless us this morning. In your name I pray, amen. Uh, you can open up your Bibles if you have them, or follow along on the screen. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2. should be a pretty familiar passage. Luke chapter 2, um, beginning in verse 8. This is what it says. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Okay, so the angels have a message for us. It's going to be good news. It's going to cause great joy for all the people, for Jews and Gentiles. Good news of great joy. That should capture our interest. We should be intrigued by that. Okay, listening. What's the message? The message is, It's a wonderful life. Nope, that's not the message. The message is, don't be miserly, but be generous and charitable. No, that's the gospel according to Dickens. No, that's not the message. The message is the angel said, just because you're different doesn't mean you're not worthwhile. No, that's Rudolph. What's the message? The message is today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. That's a very different kind of message, isn't it? And around this time, we we hear all kinds of messages. 
very few of them have anything whatsoever to do with the Savior being born. And if you're just looking around at our culture, you'd probably think that Christmas is about family. Or if you're watching the Hallmark Channel, you'd probably think that Christmas is about romance. Most common of all, though, I think, is probably Christmas is about some kind of schmaltzy sentimentality. You know, my kids watch a movie called Santa Paws. It's talking dogs and Santa Claus. Not one of my favorites. Uh, there's a song in it, and I want to read the lyrics to you. It says this, I do believe in Christmas. I believe in love. What does that even mean? Well, you believe in Christmas, like that it exists? What do you believe about it? You believe in love? What, as a, as a concept? What do you believe about love? Say something. It goes on. As sure as there is Santa ringing sleigh bells up above, we do believe in harmony and family and good cheer throughout the year. Whenever there's hope in the air, whenever we light the tree, whenever there's love in our prayers, that's Christmas time to me. Whenever I hear a Christmas song, I want to get up and sing. Whenever there's love, I sing along and find some bells to ring. There'll be laughter. There'll be song. We'll go caroling all night long. Believing in Christmas makes it magic. Can't you see? No, I don't see, actually. That's just gibberish. It's a, it's a grab bag of words that's meant to invoke some kind of schmaltzy sentimentality. It's just vapid, meaningless drivel that's meant to get some merriment from you. There's absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the Savior being born. Now you're probably thinking, he's right. And good looking. <laughs> right? I mean, this is not a new concept, right? We've all heard, oh, we need to put Christ back into Christmas. There is a war on Christmas. Did you hear that the city of Boston passed legislation that essentially outlawed the practice and observance of Christmas? Did you hear about this? No? Well, if you didn't hear about it on the news, that's probably because it happened in the 1600s. 1659, this is the legislation. Let me read it to you. For preventing disorders arising in several places within this jurisdiction, by reason of some still observing some festivals as were superstitiously kept in other countries, to the great dishonor of God and offense of others, it is therefore ordered that whosoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas or the like, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or in any other way upon any such account, as aforesaid, every such person so offending shall pay for every such offense five shillings as a fine to the county. You're falling up on there. Those are not typos. This was before standardized spelling. This is coming from the Puritans. The Puritans were not fans of Christmas. Partially, they thought this is sort of just Catholic idolatry. I don't know about that. But some of their other reasons, kind of justifiable. They would say, it's not biblical. True. There's nothing in the Bible that mandates that we celebrate Christmas. They say, these are just pagan practices. Right? This is the winter solstice. It's 
evergreen trees and wreaths and yule logs. That's pagan stuff. And yeah, it is. And they say, oh, this is just a season for debauchery and drunkenness. And that was true of their time. It's true of our time. We all know of Christmas parties that are not exactly wholesome affairs. You know, Christmas in this country was not widely practiced or popular until about the 19th century. Over in England, when the Puritans came to power of Parliament with Oliver Cromwell in 1647, they went about banning Christmas too, cracking down on it. So they banned anything that was sort of associated with it. They banned mince pies and plum pudding. And churches were not allowed to have Christmas services. And uh, soldiers would actually go through the streets and they would confiscate food that they thought was going to be used for Christmas celebrations. Businesses were prohibited from closing their doors during Christmas time. This actually led to a riot in Canterbury. A shopkeeper refused to open up his business during Christmas and he was going to be sent over to the stocks and people started rioting. They started playing games in the streets and breaking some windows and doing a little light looting and decorating with holly bushes on door frames and such. And this was called the Plum Pudding Riots. Soldiers had to be brought in to get the city under control. Talk about a war on Christmas. In uh, Soviet Russia, under that atheistic regime, they were trying to get rid of everything religious. And so in 1928, they officially banned Christmas. And actually, that was the law of the land until as recently as 1991. Stalin reappropriated Christmas trees, called them New Year's trees. And all the festivities and all the celebrations were about the New Year then. It was all secularized. It's kind of funny, isn't it, if you think about it? You know, the militant atheists banning Christmas because it's far too Christian. And then you have the Christian Puritans banning Christmas because this is just pagan nonsense. And to this day, we're still sort of fighting over those traditions and those symbols and what they really mean and is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not. It absolutely is, by the way. You can take the long view of history here and all of this can seem kind of silly. It isn't biblical. Nothing in the Bible mandates that we celebrate Advent. And I don't know of very many biblical scholars that actually think that Jesus was born on December 25th. And all these symbols and stuff, yeah, it's really co-opted from pagan stuff. And nowadays, Christmas is just so commercialized. What's the point? Why bother? Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Something about that message. You know, I don't think it's a surprise that we gravitate towards other messages because implicit in that message from the angels is a rather distasteful notion that you need a Savior. See, this might be good news, but that's really only because it's bad news first. You may not like that message. We may not care for that message. We may not be inclined to hear that message, which is why it's all the more important that we remember it. Those Stalinistic atheists who were banning Christmas, 
They needed a Savior. And as Christian Puritans who were sometimes too often legalistic and graceless, they needed a Savior too. And the pagans with their winter solstice and their worship of the creation rather than the creator, they needed a Savior. And the writers of those schmaltzy, sentimental songs that are vapid, so reflective of a heart that's actually yearning and longing for spiritual significance, for spiritual meaning, oh, they need a Savior. And so do we. Whatever the machinations of man, whatever forms or shapes this might take, the message from those angels is still worthwhile pondering and reflecting on and remembering. Remembering that we needed a Savior, and God sent us one. You know, I kind of like that term, war on Christmas. I want to capture it a little bit differently, because I think a baby being born in Bethlehem was a war on Christmas. It was D-Day of a holy invasion. It was the beginning of the end of a war that's been raging since Satan and his angels fell. God the King comes to earth to conquer once and for all sin and death in our own hearts too. And I read uh, to you those lyrics from that kind of silly Christmas song. I want to read some other lyrics from a song I don't think is quite so silly. You've heard it. You know it. Hear it again though. Long, long lay the world in sin and error, pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and a glorious morn. I think that should elicit a response like the Nintendo 64 kid. <laughs> that was kind of tepid. Maybe our joy is just sort of more of the quiet, dignified kind. Maybe. But I actually think that, believe it or not, people struggle to find joy in this. We've heard it. We've heard it. Year after year. We sing the same songs, we light the same candles recite the same bits of scripture. You know, with enough time and exposure, doesn't everything just kind of become monotonous? G.K. Chesterton had an interesting quote about this. He said, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. You know, as parents, I think you, you recognize that. He goes on here, For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes old daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. It's an interesting idea. It's an interesting notion. 
But what do we do about it? Because isn't it natural? Isn't it normal just to kind of become numb and accustomed to things? And as excited as that kid was to receive that gift, what do you think his response would be if you took it, just rewrapped it, and gave it back to him the next year? It's probably not that. But you go, why? It brought you so much joy. And is that what we're doing? We're just rewrapping the same gift over and over again and thinking it's going to give us joy and just sort of feigning surprise and feigning joy. I don't think that's going to work. I mean, for good or ill, and maybe it's ill, we just become numb to things. That's true of things. But that's not true of relationships. Or at least it doesn't have to be. You know, I've been married for 12 years. It's not as long as some, but it's certainly long enough for it to become monotonous. And it hasn't. You know, I can honestly say that I love my wife more today than the day I married her. And I bet you would say the same about your spouse. I wasn't striving for that. It's not a goal that I set for myself. I wasn't day in and day out trying to manufacture that, trying to elicit that. But I was living in relationship. And I was doing the work of relationship. You know, if even our human relationships with, with all of our shortcomings, with our failures and our sin, if even those relationships can be such a wellspring of joy for us, well then how much more so can our relationship with God, who loves us better, who loves us more deeply, and as none of our shortcomings, who never fails us, who never sins against us, how much greater is that wellspring of joy for us? And that's what God is inviting us into. Jesus says this in John chapter 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. God inviting us into relationship. You know, a few verses down in this same chapter, God says, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. Inviting us into relationship. Remain in my love. Obey my teachings. That's, that's the work of relationship. And God has always spoken to us in relational terms. Listen to this from prophet Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19. God says, I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father. It's a sad statement, isn't it? I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. Verse 14, return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Last week we were hearing about Hosea and Gomer. There's a picture for us. Gomer is this faithless wife. And Hosea going to and redeeming her. And a picture for us of God and humanity. See, the Savior that was born to us is not simply saving us from something. He is saving us for someone you are called the bride of Christ. 
You are called his beloved. John says in 1 John, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Relational terms. Father and child, husband and wife. The nativity scene is Hosea going after Gomer. My wife sometimes flusters me. She'll say things like, happy anniversary. And I'll think, am I going crazy? What month did we get married in? Well, she's not talking about her wedding date. She means, oh, this was the first date. Or this was this first thing. Important moments in the relationship. Well, this is an anniversary. It's set aside for a moment this kind of the corporate nature of the celebration. Personalized. This is an anniversary of an important moment in God's relationship with you. This is when he came to seek you out. You know, if all of this is just sort of our traditions and symbols, then yeah, we are just kind of rewrapping the same gift over and over again and thinking it's going to give us joy. So you can get the biggest tree that you want. You can stack it full of presents. You can decorate your house so that it can be seen from space. You can watch Christmas movies, listen to Christmas music on a constant loop. You can light as many candles as you want and recite as much scripture as you want. You can recite the whole Bible if you want, but if it's not personal, it's not meaningful. This is about God coming to earth to restore and reconcile the relationship, not just with humanity, but with you. Maybe you're struggling with joy. Maybe you're doing all the Christmassy things and it's just kind of empty. Maybe you're feeling like there's just too much grief in my life right now to hear this message from the angels. I think it's worth asking, have we wandered away from our father? Have we strayed from our husband? In the season of Advent, I think we should personalize it and really ask, well, what does it mean to you? See, I light this candle in remembrance because there were times in my life where I was discouraged and felt despair, but I still had hope in Jesus. I light this candle because of love, because I know full well those times when I was a faithless bride, but God loved me enough to redeem me. I light this candle because there are times when my world felt upside down. I had anxiety and fear and dread, but the peace that surpassed all understanding was over me. I light this candle because even though my world has grief in it, I know that it will turn to joy because a Savior came into the world and conquered it. I light this candle because the Christ of Christmas came to my aid And he's coming again. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.